This is the Caveat Mentor podcast, and in this episode, we're covering the basics of what a blockchain is. My name is Mentor. I've spent the past 10 years in and around crypto making mistakes and trying to learn from them. I write both Web2 and Web3 software, and it is my intention to explain blockchain technology the way that I understand it. Today we're covering what a blockchain is. We're not going to go into the details of how a blockchain reaches consensus, how exactly the security works, or what its best use cases are. Those are topics for a following episode. But we're going to focus on the basics of how you can think about what a blockchain is and the elements upon uh, which it is built. A quick note before we begin. Uh, I've decided to do a giveaway with every episode. Uh, this episode, I'm giving away one RPL token. Uh, if you're interested in that, the details are at the end of the episode. We're going to begin with a metaphor. And based on this metaphor, we're going to dive step-by-step uh, step deeper into the fundaments of a blockchain. The metaphor we're going to use is that of an Excel spreadsheet. So imagine we have a group of people, perhaps me, uh, my brothers, a friend or two, and we're trying to keep track of who owes who what. Uh, or if you want to think of it more simply, uh, who has how much money. So in the spreadsheet, this Excel spreadsheet, we have two columns. The first column is the name or address of a person. Think of it as an account number, though for now we're just going to use uh, someone's name. And in the second column, uh, how much of the monetary unit that we're working with uh, this person owns. So perhaps the first row is mentor who has 10 units. Uh, then uh, my brother might have 20 units. Uh, my colleague might have five units. And like that, we have uh, a spreadsheet. This spreadsheet, however, has some interesting characteristics. One of them is it is a secured spreadsheet, which means that if I want to change the value of someone's money in the second column, I need to know the password to that particular row. So if I want to transfer money from mentor's row to my brother's, my brother's row, um, the sheet will ask for my password. Note for the techies listening, um, indeed blockchains do not work with passwords. The details of the cryptography is a topic for later. Now let's say, instead of editing this spreadsheet as time passes, as we make transactions between ourselves, instead, every hour, we come together and we ask around who wants to make transactions. We make a list of the changes, and instead of editing the spreadsheet, we copy and paste the spreadsheet. We call the first spreadsheet, perhaps version 1.0 of the spreadsheet. And the second one, we say, this is spreadsheet version 1.1. And the first line on this new spreadsheet is a line that says, this spreadsheet comes after spreadsheet version 1.0. Now in this new spreadsheet, version 1.1, uh, we make the edits that we want to do. And the spreadsheet asks for the passwords, make sure that uh, every transaction that's being made is allowed to be made. Um, and like that, with every hour that passes, we create a new spreadsheet. So we create a stack of spreadsheets, each, uh, each of which has the changes uh, relative to the previous one. 
So we create, think of it, a chain of spreadsheets. A blockchain is basically this. Only instead of spreadsheets, uh, we call the units in which we store the data, we call them blocks. On a cryptographic level, we aren't actually copying the whole blockchain with every change. We're only recording the changes. Uh, but for now, for the metaphor, you can think of it this way. We have a sheet and every hour, or depending on the blockchain, every 10 seconds, every five seconds, uh, whatever parameters it uses, uh, we copy and paste the state. We ask people what transactions they want to make. Uh, and then we, in a secure fashion, how that security works, we'll cover later. Um, we store these changes and we make a chain of changes, which means that at the end of a year, in our spreadsheet analogy, uh, we'll have one spreadsheet for every hour with all the changes. So at the end of the year, we can very easily trace back every step of what happened. At every moment in time, we can see who has how much of the monetary unit, because you know, if two columns, column for account, column for value, uh, and we can very easily trace every change, when it happened, between who, and we can verify cryptographically that the person who made the transaction was allowed to make that transaction. All right, so this is the base metaphor we're using in this episode. As a next step, we are going to describe a blockchain slightly more let's say complicatedly or with industry jargon. A blockchain, in other words, can be called a distributed ledger that is immutable and permissionless. The astute and advanced listeners will think now, hold up a minute, that is not always the case. And indeed it is not. I am assuming we are talking about public blockchains uh, in the forms that, for example, Bitcoin, Ethereum, and a number of the other uh, public blockchains are. So distributed ledger that is immutable and permissionless. We're going to cover these terms separately using metaphors. We're going to start with a ledger. So a ledger is just a word for a registry in which we keep track of things. The Excel spreadsheet of our previous metaphor is an example of a ledger. One story that is very commonly used in the um, Bitcoin community is one of the rye stones of the Yap uh, island nation, somewhere in Micronesia, if I remember correctly. I don't remember the specifics, so I'm going to uh, tell the story and embellish some of the details, so forgive me. But imagine an island nation, a group of islands together, where as a payment system, they use these stones. Think uh, large wheels made out of rock. They are difficult to mine. Uh, difficult to transport. Some of them are small enough to carry around, and others are so big that really they just stay uh, where they are. Now it's of course very dangerous to transfer these stones, uh, especially between islands. You know, what if you drop it in the sea and there goes all your money? So instead of transferring the stones physically, the solution that one can use for this is we take a trusted party, perhaps someone on the central island, who has a book, and in this book we keep track of what big stones exist and next to it the name of the person who owns the stone. This is the ledger. And let's say I want to buy a house from Bob. I have a big stone. 
Bob has a house. We go together to the central ledger and I say, hey, I want to transfer this stone to Bob. And the trusted third party, uh, perhaps some sort of uh, political position, says, okay, I see you, mentor, I see that you're here. I will change the ownership of the stone to Bob. And now I can move into Bob's house. Now that central book is an example of a ledger, just like our Excel spreadsheet, the central place in which we keep track of who owns what. The word distributed in distributed ledger refers to a computer science description um, of where control or data lies. There are three terms you're going to come across if you pay attention to the crypto world, the blockchain world. That is centralized, decentralized, and distributed. The word centralized means that there is a central party who has control over a given system. Think, for example, of Netflix. Uh, if you're watching Netflix and Netflix uh, in their side of the system turns off the button that allows you to watch Frozen in your country, uh, the movie Frozen, um, then tough luck. Uh, they can do that because that's under their control. And yes, the techies among you, I understand that their infrastructure is quite distributed with their CDNs and so forth. Uh, but for now, in the metaphor, when it comes to control, the control of the content on Netflix is centralized. Decentralized refers to a situation in which there are multiple parties who have some form of control. You can think, for example, about uh, your Dropbox or Google Drive or iCloud accounts, which, whichever system that you use. Uh, you might have your files synchronized between multiple devices. They might be accessible on your phone, on your iPad, and on your home computer. The control of these files is decentralized in the sense that there are multiple devices that have control of this data. If you add a photo from your phone, it will show up on your iPad. If you delete a file through your computer, they will also be removed from the repository on your iPhone and your iPad. Now, this is a uh, it's not a perfect metaphor, but it's close enough for now. Distributed control and distributed data means that there isn't one person or a group of persons or devices that have more control than the rest. Uh, perhaps I am dating myself now as an elder millennial, uh, but we used to download files over the torrent network. I hasten to add this was legal at the time where I was. Um, what the torrent network would allow you to do is go to a site like the Pirate Bay. You would download the reference to a file, perhaps a movie that you're willing to download. You would tell your computer, uh, this is the movie that I want. And what would happen in the background with this torrent network is your computer would basically shout out to the internet, hello, uh, I would like to download this movie. And some computers would respond saying, I have this movie. And then I would, from these multiple computers, uh, download that movie. And once I have the movie, my computer sh starts sharing that movie to other people who also want it. The data of this movie is distributed. If I would want to take down this movie from the Torrent network, uh, it would uh, um, require me to take down every single computer that has a copy of this movie. Uh, this is what decentralization means 
in this context. So a decentralized ledger you can think of as the book in which we keep track of who owns what, but <clears throat> our digital books are linked to each other. So if we have people spread around the world, all with our magical spreadsheet, and every hour we're allowed to submit changes to the spreadsheet, and you know we're going to copy and paste for the new spreadsheet, and we're going to create the new version. Um, when I want to make a transaction, I broadcast this to the other people in the world who have a similar ledger, and they all update their ledgers. This data is constantly flowing back and forth between the players that are part of this distributed network. So we keep our ledgers in sync with each other, but at any given point, after the updates are done for the hour, all of our ledgers have the same data. So this ledger is distributed, which is to say, if we would want to take down this, this piece of data, this spreadsheet with who owns what, we would have to take down every single copy of it. Because there's no central party, like in our Netflix example, that can just flip the off switch. In fact, there aren't even multiple parties, like in our uh, Google Drive or Dropbox example, that can collude together to take down this data. We would really need to take down every piece of data because it is completely distributed. All right, so a distributed ledger that is immutable and permissionless. Immutability, immutable, means that something cannot be changed. In the example of our spreadsheets, uh, once we copy and paste our spreadsheet for the new version, the previous version is locked. It is locked cryptographically. Again, how that works in detail, we will cover later, but suffice it to say, functionally, it is not possible to change previous versions of the spreadsheet. And if someone would show up with a fake version of a spreadsheet of six months ago, we could very easily see that it was fake because we have the whole chain of changes. You know, every change in the spreadsheet generates a new one. We can very easily spot a fraudulent spreadsheet because it wouldn't be consistent with the other spreadsheets. The immutability is a characteristic that is always relative. Keep this in mind if you hear people online talking about immutability. Think of a Blu-ray disc that has a movie on it, you know, for those of you that, that aren't streaming at home. Uh, I remember <laughs> the days of DVDs. Um, the write-only DVD variant, or the Blu-ray Blu variant, um, once it is written, it is written. It cannot be changed. I cannot take a DVD with a movie on it and insert it into my computer and decide now I want to use it to store my personal documents. That's not how a Blu-ray disc works. That is not to say that on a physical physics level, I cannot change the data on this Blu-ray. I can take a knife and I can cut the Blu-ray apart. And now the data <laughs> that can be read uh, from this Blu-ray is different. We would say corrupted. Uh, but from a computer science perspective, well, you know, nothing is entirely immutable. If I have an immutable spreadsheet on my computer, because the software on my computer made the spreadsheet immutable, but I hold a strong magnet next to my computer, that data will still be perfectly mutable. So in the context 
of immutability, you can think of it as on the one side, something that is really hard to change, like a Blu-ray disc, or something that's very easy to change, like a whiteboard, where a whiteboard is made to be mutable, to be changeable. That is the whole point, the reason it exists. Now these distributed ledgers that are immutable and permissionless, they try to make it cryptographically so difficult to change the history of what we have done so that it functionally is not feasible. All right, so that's immutability. The last word, permissionlessness, is very interesting from a, a programmer's perspective. And uh, I'm going to try and uh, explain this in a non-programmer way. But the, the most interesting, or for me, the easiest way to explain this is that if you have a system, say for example, the Instagram or Facebook system, pick any of your favorite social network, uh, that contains a lot of data. Uh, for me as a developer, I could do all sorts of interesting things with that data. For example, uh, when I was in university uh, many moons ago, um, there was this application called Rainmaker, where I could grab my Google contacts, I could link that to my Facebook, my LinkedIn, and all sorts of other places, and it would pull all the data for my social networks and create an up-to-date contact book with pictures, birthdays, last social media post. Uh, it was very cool. The way that that system worked is Facebook allowed this to happen. LinkedIn allowed this to happen. They had APIs, uh, a programming interface, which means I, as a programmer, can access part of their system. Uh, that allowed this kind of a system to exist. The way that such an API works is I go to Instagram or Facebook, and I mean, I don't literally go to their customer service. You know, you fill in some forms in, uh, online, but effectively what happens is I go to them, I say, I would like access to your systems. They say, that is so nice. We like that you want to add to our ecosystem. Here is an API key. This is your authentication token. And you can go to uh, these servers over here. Uh, and when you use this authentication token, we will give you access to part of our data. They might give me access to people's names, their profile pictures, but none of the social media platforms allow access to email addresses. Usually they close off certain pieces of data to developers uh, because that's their proprietary data. They, they value that very much and they wouldn't just want to share that. This is an example of permissioned data. Now this too is a spectrum where Instagram or Facebook might be relatively permissioned. And then there are APIs like bank APIs. Um, you might hear the derision uh, in, my, in my voice here. Uh, most banks do not allow programmers to make apps, applications, that hook into the banking system. A couple of years ago in Europe, they introduced this legislation. I forget its exact name, something like PDS, PD2S, something along those, those lines. I'll try to put it in the show notes. That basically uh, forced banks to create an API. The idea was to create more competition and to make uh, financial innovation from, for consumer technology easier. Now what the banks did, most of them anyway, is add a contact button on their website that says, uh, if you want access to our systems, fill out this contact form, please, and we'll be in touch with you. I've tried with a few. Uh, you get no response unless you too are a large corporate organization. So this is highly, highly permissioned data, which is one of the reasons you don't see a lot of interesting 
application innovation in the banking system. Blockchain systems are on the radical opposite of these permissioned API systems. The idea is that everybody plays by the same rules. Everybody can read the same data and any privileged uh, access, <clears throat> for example, making a transaction in our spreadsheet, has the same rules for everybody. So if I, I, if I have the password to a certain account, then I can move that money. There is no extra check whether I am a corporate institution or not, whether the application that I'm building makes any sense according to anyone. Uh, the permissionlessness means there are no special permissions which means that everyone can see our spreadsheet. Everyone can see the history of the spreadsheet. Uh, in the case of, for example, Bitcoin, if you give me a Bitcoin address, I can see uh, exactly how much Bitcoin is in there. I can see where it came from. Uh, I can trace all the way back where that money came from. The audit trail is pristine. It is uh, beautiful and cryptographically uh, not falsifiable because it is immutable. And again, I hasten to remind, nothing is truly immutable, but as far as this goes, functionally, uh, it is as guaranteed as anything in computer science. So there we go, we have a distributed ledger that is immutable and permissionless. We have a spreadsheet chain, a bunch of spreadsheets, but the data of this chain of spreadsheets is not in one place, it is everywhere on everyone's computer that is using our distributed ledger system, that is using our blockchain. So in the case of uh, Bitcoin, uh, everyone who runs a full node wallet has a full copy of the trail of spreadsheets, where every block is a new spreadsheet. Um, those people cannot change the history. And everyone has the same read data, and everyone has the same write rules as the rest. This is the basis of the working of a blockchain. Now, there are two things I was doubting to include in this episode or not, so I will touch them here briefly, and perhaps we will go into more detail in a future episode. Uh, but because there are questions that people have immediately about blockchains, uh, I'm going to put them in here, and that is, what is a token? And what does a smart contract mean in this context? So a token, for example, uh, the RPL token I'm going to give away uh, in this, uh, at the end of this episode, basically just means in the spreadsheet that we have together, instead of two columns, we have a rule that says anyone can create a new column. And in that column, they can track some sort of value. For example, I can go to our shared spreadsheet and say I'd like to create a new column, column M. Uh, we'll call it a mentor token. And in that column, uh, I'm going to give myself 500 mentor tokens. And that's it. That's a token. I can now transfer it back and forth between people. And so far, it does nothing except for in the spreadsheet, we can now keep track who has how many mentor tokens. Perhaps I will give them out for fun to play with my friends. Perhaps we're playing a game and uh, we need uh, some form of imaginary token to, to do that. 
That's all a token is in its basis. The tokens become most interesting when they're combined with smart contracts. The idea of a smart contract within the context of our Excel spreadsheet metaphor is like uh, Excel macros or Excel functions. So those of you that have worked in Excel know that you can do relatively fancy things in an Excel spreadsheet. You can, for example, say uh, a certain cell in the spreadsheet uh, always has the value that is the sum of a couple of other, other values. You can say uh, in this column right here, the sum of all the values in that column can never be larger than 100 uh, or any other given number. Uh, this is what I could do for my mentor token. Uh, I could create a rule in my column that says whenever someone has more than 10 mentor tokens, any token they receive instead goes to me. Why would I do that? No idea. It's a smart contract. It just does what I tell it to do. The word smart contract is perhaps not the most accurate, but in essence, it is the rules of a column, the rules that we apply in our spreadsheet. And the creator of a token, the creator of a column in our spreadsheet, they get to decide what the rules are in its column. The details of that we'll cover at a later point, because as simple as this sounds, this is extremely powerful in the hands of a programmer. Um, and I'm already quite kind of excited to dive in there. But for now, let's leave the blockchain stuff at this point. In future episodes, we'll cover how the security of this whole thing works. So how come that we can't have cheaters? We'll cover what the point of this whole thing is. I can imagine some of you listening to this thinking, that seems like an awfully complicated way, a space wasteful way, a complex way to just keep track of who owns what. And you're right, but those trade-offs, they come with, uh, with some benefits that we will discuss in a future episode. Um, I hope this episode was useful to you. Uh, please let me know on Twitter whether it was. I'm doing this as an experiment. Uh, I have very sparse notes, like 10 bullet points, and I'm just ad-libbing this. So I would love to hear whether what I'm saying makes any sense or whether it is useful to you. Uh, you can find me on Twitter as ActuallyMentor, because believe it or not, my name is actually Mentor. Um, I am doing a giveaway as part of this episode uh, as a fun marketing gimmick. Uh, the way that it works is every episode I'll be releasing a POAP, a proof of attendance protocol NFT. Uh, you'll be able to buy it for a couple bucks. That way you support this podcast. And at the end of every episode, I will raffle away uh, one token for fun to someone who holds one of the POAPs. The more of the POAPs that you own, which is to say the more a loyal listener you are, uh, the more you chance you have to win. So for instructions, just go to mentor.substack.com, or if you're listening to this in a podcast player, you can uh, probably read the instructions in the description of the, this episode. Uh, please also let me know whether you like this mechanic. Uh, again, I am really just experimenting here, uh, so uh, all feedback is welcome. <laughs>